Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Hope you're having a great weekend. If you want to learn something about circus families, you're in the right place because this is a throwback select episode to July 2nd, 2015 circus families. Believe it or not, it's a thing. Great, great, rich traditions all over the world with circus families, Uh, fathers and mothers teaching sons and daughters, aunts and uncles, teaching nieces and nephews how to swing on trapezes and climb ropes and do flips and ride motorcycles. Here we go. How circus families work. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. It's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry, which makes this the Flying SYSKs. <laughs> flying stuff, Stuffians. Stuffinos. Ooh, Stuffinis. The Flying Stuffinis. Nice. Man, boy. See, look at that. Took us what seven seconds, maybe even less, to come up with the best name in the history of podcasting circus teams. Yeah, we'll go back and look at the timestamp after this publishes, and we'll know for sure. Yeah. But I say less than seven seconds. The Flying Stefinis. Yeah, good job, man. All right, I guess we can retire. We've hit it big. Yeah, we have. You can make some money being a circus family. I learned. Yeah, I have no idea about cost, so you will delight me because I think everyone—well, not everyone—I think some people. When they go to the circus, they're like, what's that guy make for throwing knives? Oh, I have no idea what they make. It's just the impression I got from this research. (laughs) Gotcha. I thought you had some hard numbers. Uh, No. You're the stat man, remember? Uh, I know, but people don't, uh, you know, it's rude to talk about money. So people don't share these things these days. Uh, That's why I'm not saying anything. (laughs) I'm just telling you the impression I had. They're always strutting around with goblets full of really expensive wine. Yeah. Circus families. So, you know. Yeah. They got, uh, you know, every time I think we're all circused out, there comes another topic. Well, we have yet to do how circuses themselves work. We will do that one day. So we've done all of its components. Every last <laughs> one after this. Well, it does have interesting history, so we'll, we will save that then. Yeah, we will. I, I do want to do how circuses work. And we should also say, I don't want anybody to have the impression that by talking about circus families, we are endorsing circuses in general. I have serious issues with some of them. Or oh. With them, for the most part. Oh, like uh, because of their treatment of animals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of them don't use animals at all anymore. Well, not a lot of them. Some of them don't. I have no problem with those circuses. Yeah. Like, I remember the Big Apple Circus. They have uh, a dog thing. Well, dogs. I mean, what and, are you going to do anyway? Uh, a horse thing, and I think that was it. And horses love to show off, so I'm okay with the Big Apple. Yeah, you wouldn't show, you know, but no, no, they wouldn't show, like, uh, an elephant. Right. Right. Which is funny, because apparently an elephant is equal to a family circus performer. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Or I should say circus family performer. Family circus is totally different. Yeah, this is a little frustrating to research because I kept getting lots of circular <laughs> cartoons that weren't funny. Yeah. You don't think they're funny? <laughs> I do family well, circus okay, is they're, terrible. They're not funny. I think they're charming and heartwarming. For yeah, you. sure. You know, Jeffy wrote on the wall. Right. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's cute. Their little hair and the noses and the they're cute. Uh, that I have a brief segue here initially. Okay. Um, that reminded me, I was just at Max FunCon, uh, the, yes. the weekend retreat of Jesse Thorne and his podcasting empire. Everybody loved you, that picture of you and Hodgman and Justin McElroy's kid. Yeah, little baby Charlie. Yeah, very cute. Yeah, I think uh, people love babies. Hodgman, who doesn't even particularly like kids, was like, give me that baby. 
<laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Husband likes kids. At least he likes his own kids. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was just there. And first of all, let me recommend the Super Ego podcast. Mm-hmm. Very funny improv podcast uh, featuring Matt Gorley and uh, Paul F. Tompkins mm-hmm. and uh, Mark McConville and Jeremy Carter. You could have stopped at Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but one man improv is like, it's not the best. He can do it. <laughs> I bet he could. Yeah, he does. I've seen it. So anyway, long story short, we were playing this game one night where we were naming comic strips and the comic strip Mark Trail came up. Oh man. Do you remember that? Well, it wasn't even trying to be funny. Well, no, it wasn't funny at all, but it wasn't even <laughs> it was. like interesting. It was literally like, you know, the, what a beautiful sunset today. Right. <laughs> that was it. Or tracing the, uh, trail of a hawk in the sky. Yeah. Like through eight panels. Yeah. I thought it was refreshing in a little ways. Like you'd just make it all like through a, a hilarious spasm of laughter after like Funky Winkerbean or Hagar the Horrible, and you needed <sighs> to like Winker chill Bean. out. I couldn't remember that. So one. So you'd like read the the Mark Trail. Yeah. And then like you'd go at it again and just laugh and laugh. Some Beetle Bailey would yeah. just put you in stitches, and then maybe you'd come down a little on Mary Worth or yeah. Apartment What Three G. Oh, back up on Wizard of Id. Back down with Brenda Starr. Right. Yeah. That's the way you do it. Uh, but Mark Trail, I don't want to knock it too much because I believe it like taught kids about nature and conservancy and stuff like that. But and it, how it, to follow a hawk's trail in the yeah, sky. It didn't belong in the comic section. But Just, I don't know. Despite I mean, the like, fact that it was a comic strip. Yeah, a lot of those comics were like they started out, or a lot of things started out as comics, like Lone Ranger comic. Oh, really? Sure. The comic strip or a comic book? Because mm. some have been both, you know. Well, to bolster my point, let's say comic strip. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. And it, it might have actually started out as a radio show, now that I think about it. Hey, that, went, that worked out well. I was thinking, how can we kill some time here before we do circuses? That's how. Family circus tangent. So, family circuses. Uh, when I first circus started, families. Yeah, circus families. <laughs> when I first started researching, I was like, what a weird thing to be in a circus family. And then I thought... It, it might be weird to be in one, but not weird that there are circus families because it makes total sense Sure, that it's the family business. Well, that's how circuses largely started out. Yeah, very familial. It was, um, you know, like you, some patriarch of a family would find out that, hey, I'm, I'm kind of good at juggling. Why don't I try doing it while I stand on the back of a moving horse? Sure. And they'd go, holy cow, I'm actually doing this. Yeah. And uh, they'd say, well, let me see what happens when I toss my sons in the air. Instead of juggling, you know, batons. Juggle my sons. Yeah. Yeah. If I set their hair on fire using some sort of safe, flammable material that will burn but not burn the sun, say. Yeah, like have a flame retardant cap. Sure. That's, uh, yeah. Then all of a sudden, you've got a circus family. (laughs) And, like, these people would would start out by, you know, the whole family would get involved. And this was a time when there were much larger families than there are today. And they would form their own mini circus and travel around. And as circuses became more and more established and entrenched and divided among some very big names, um, they started basically freelancing for these things. Like they go on a tour or a couple of tours yeah. or be, you know, with a large circus for a couple of years. And then they go off and get on another tour or something like that. Yeah. But um, they would form these family acts and that's how circuses originally got started. Yeah. And um, apparently it's it just... The more you look at it, the more it makes sense. You know, they're on the road a lot. Um, and if you want to spend time with your family, get your family in the family business. Because then right. mom and dad aren't on the road doing their equestrian act. 
they're bringing the kids along and teaching them, and all of a sudden they're the the riding uh, Stefinos. Right. And they're spending time together. And it's, uh, you know, I read a few interviews with uh, people in circus families, and apparently if you were not from a circus family, uh, this quote from uh, Big Apple Circus guest director Steve Smith said, for those of, us, uh, those of us who didn't grow up in the circus, there's always a feeling as if we're on the outside looking in Yeah. on what they call, uh, quote, being circus. Yeah, like if you're born into a circus family and you're in the circus, you have automatic prestige. Yeah. You're part of a dynasty, and that's being circus. Yeah, it's like uh, real police if you're a fan of The Wire. Sure. There's cops and there's real police. Yeah, but like if you were born into being police. Which a lot of cops are. Yeah, sure. Also another family tradition uh, job. Yes. I don't know if uh, little podcasters are going to come along. <laughs> we're not at that point yet where, like, there's been a generation oh, no, removed. Oh, no, not yet. You know? Not yet. But, Close. Um, yeah, maybe little Charlie McElroy will be a podcaster. Ooh, maybe. Um, and then they call, uh, they say marrying inside the circus also makes a lot of sense because where are you going to meet people but right. probably fellow performers. Other circus families. So these And not towners if you're not, like... Uh, if, like you and I are towners. So, yeah, a.k.a. slack-jawed yokels. Yeah. You know? Sure. Hey, look at that. <laughs> Light that thing on fire and jump through it. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there's a pretty neat article on PBS um, called Being Circus, Life in the Family Business, about being born into a circus family. It seems like a pretty cool life. I mean, um, you know, they go to school on the road, and I think it's like one big family because they say – you know, if you're in a trapeze act, you can't be mad at your dad who is catching you in the trapeze act tonight. So I think you got to like... <laughs> he'll drop you. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't go into a performance, a dangerous performance like the globe of death, harboring any animosity toward your siblings. Right. So you got to work this stuff out. You know, they're, they're tight-knit people. Right. And it seems like the custom is that once you are done performing as a member of a circus family, there's a a non-performing job for you ready and waiting in the circus elsewhere, like in administration or something like that. I thought you were going to say break a deal, face the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Long-standing tradition in the circus. I know. Welcome to Bartertown. Um, Face the wheel. I watched that not too long ago. I told you, I think I watched the whole Mad Max trilogy. Oh, yeah? Yeah. uh, The quadrilogy now? Well, yeah, I think it's still trilogy plus one. Mm-hmm. Like Durham is our plus one on the Northeast tour. Yep. The lousy people of Durham. <laughs> Get it together, Durham. <laughs> um, all right. So you want to talk about some of these famous families? You know, you marry into it, you're born into it, and then before you know it. And they, it seems like they always have a lot of kids, too. Yeah. Like seven children because well, you like, need seven to complete a pyramid. Exactly. <laughs> is that why? Probably. If you think you need help, um, you know, tending to the farm— Imagine having, like, a circus act. Yeah, that's a good point. And some circus families also kind of expand, especially once they form a troupe. They'll expand the family act to include non-family members. Sure. Where they're, they're members of the troupe. They're not members of the family. But for, no. for any outsider, they're like, oh, there's, like, three dads here. Yeah, but they take the traditional blood oath, I think. Sure. You know, just so they fit they in. They cut themselves with an <laughs> elephant tusk. That's Still right. Still attached to the elephant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then they do a trapeze yep. act. That's got to hurt. Yeah. So let's talk about the Clarks, one of the earliest um, British circus families. Any least. relation to you? Probably. Yeah. I mean, can't you tell? Sure. You've seen me on the high wire. <laughs> I have. 
you're quite skilled. Uh, yes, they uh, the Clarks go all the way back to the very first uh, circuses um, because a man named Philip Astley is credited as being the inventor of the modern circus in the late 1700s. Right, and he heard about John Clark, who was a horseman. Mm. And a lot of these people were horse people. Yeah. It's a good way to start in the circus. Sure. Just be good on a horse. Exactly. Um, he, uh, John Clark was good on a horse. He caught the attention of um, Philip Astley. And uh, in the early 19th century, they started a circus act. Yeah, it was an aerial act at first. Right. And um, it seems like anytime you're good, then the Ringling Brothers will come a-calling at some point. Yeah, for sure. To snap you up. Yeah. Because they are the greatest show on earth. That's right. Um, the, the, one of the ways also to cement your family act as a dynasty, yeah. in addition to having multiple generations that stay in the circus, mm-hmm. um, is to create some new thrilling move that no one else has done before. Oh, yeah. Like the Clarks are credited with, um, coming up with the, uh, triple back somersault in 1909, right? Oh yeah, and the the whole the Clark family dynasty actually broke up because of World War II. World War II, interestingly, had a really uh, direct impact on a lot of circus families, yeah. and the Clarks were among them. Um, so the men went off to war. I'm sure some of them died. The ones who returned were like, "I've seen too much to go back into the circus," and it was up to Ernestine Clark, who was a great granddaughter of John Clark, I believe. Right. To carry on the family business, basically, yes. single-handedly. And daughter of Ernest, her name was actually Elizabeth Laura, but she looked so much like Ernest, people called her Little Ernie. No. And uh, so she, cute. Yeah, she eventually went by Ernestine. I guess she was like, I might as well just make this a little more feminine. It's like a family circus strip. <laughs> <laughs> and she did soldier on, um, you know, after World War II, like you said. Uh, it's so crazy to think about these... Famous people going and joining the army. Well, Elvis did. Yeah, Elvis was in the army. I know, he was also probably like more protected than Prince Harry is. Sure, but he was still in the army. Sure. And famous athletes, like, can you imagine like Justin Bieber is in the army to fight in the Middle East? <laughs> no, I really, really can't. Just doing his duty. I cannot. That's an American. Just a different time. It's just mind boggling to think about the mindset back then, you know? Do you know I got my haircut recently by the guy who created the Bieber haircut back what? in the day? I swear. Is that why you went to him? No. <laughs> I didn't find out until partway through, and I was like, please don't give me a Bieber. Please don't give me Which, a Bieber. Which was the, the sweepy in your face yes. thing? Yes. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So he was Bieber stylist? Yes. Early on. Interesting. And gave him that haircut. Isn't that cool? I guess. <laughs> Man, I was like one degree from Justin Bieber. Oh, I think we all are. Um, <laughs> he so, knows everybody. <laughs> um, I don't know if you found this. I thought this was pretty amazing. Um, the Clarks performance group early on were called the Clarkonians. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. It's weird. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, for some reason, if you're a circus promoter, you're like, ah, oh, that name's not nearly Italian enough. Add an Eni or an Oni or something on the end yeah. of it. Even if it doesn't work, like Clarkonian, yeah, or as we'll hear about later, the Hajinis, yeah, that doesn't that's <laughs> that's senseless. It is pretty senseless. But you can thank circus promoters for coming up with those horrible hybrids of names. Yeah, I think there's a rich tradition in Italy, so they just it sounded you know fanciful. Yeah. 
Um, so Ernestine carried the torch. Um, she finally left the circus in the 1950s uh, and had a husband that was a part-time circus performer, part-time actor. And her little girls who came. Parley? Yeah. Par- you know who he was? Parley Bear? He was the mayor in Andy Griffith. Oh, no way. And if you look up his um, his uh, credits, uh-huh. he was in everything. He, like, made appearances in everything. Like, you would recognize him immediately. Interesting. He's been in everything from Three's Company to the Golden Girls. He was just in everything. Oh, wow. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Bewitched. Yeah. Did I say Three's Company? Yeah, he did. <laughs> I'll say it again. Uh, so she married the famous actor. Um <laughs> And then her daughters became trapeze artists, uh, carrying on the family tradition. Mm-hmm. And Ernestine eventually became the first daughter to follow her father into the International Circus Hall of Fame. Nice. And I have a little clip here. Do you ever read the old New York Times articles? Sometimes. The pdf ones. Oh, it's the best. The ones with 18 different um, <laughs> headlines. Yeah. yeah you just one, basically read the headline. And yeah, this has several headlines, actually. Yeah. So this was about Clark... Um, Ernest Clark in New York City in Madison Square Garden. And the first headline is, Trapeze Man Noted for Twist and Air. (laughs) Uh, Ernest Clark of Ringling Circus turns at right angles and leap for life. Line. Line. Broken rib brings panic. I'm sorry, pain. Line. Line. And then writhing action during triple somersault starts sweat of agony. All right. And then in the article it says, uh, Clark's feet is apparently... In defiance of all the laws of mechanics, for he turns his body in the air in a pirouette at right angles to its line of flight with no other leverage than that he can exert by a thrust of his shoulders. That's some journalism. It is. And then later when they're describing him, him, it says, Clark is a small, almost slight man, but with a large, wonderfully developed chest. (laughs) (laughs) With a great heart beating inside. Old New York Times articles are just the best. I would say all old newspapers, period. But um, New York Times, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, you could access you can access that stuff today pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Pretty neat. You know, I looked up what um, that line in "Staying Alive" means about the New York Times don't make a man. Is that in the song "Staying Alive"? The New York Times don't make a man. Oh, I never knew that's what they were saying. Yeah. So what does that mean? It means basically at the time that if like if it wasn't in the New York Times, it doesn't matter. Huh. And this is about a man whose life still does matter, even though it's not worthy of being reported on in the New York Times. Who, so. John Travolta or the character? Yeah, I can't remember his name. Tony Manera, um, right? Mm, I think it's Scarface. Tony Marinera? <laughs> <laughs> was it Tony? It's probably Tony. I think it was Tony. You know, so that movie was based on an article in New York Magazine. Yeah. And it turned out that the guy who wrote it made the whole thing up from beginning to end. I think I heard that. Made it up. Crazy. Yeah. But it's still worth reading. Yeah, who cares? And especially if you know that he made it up, you're like, how did how did anybody buy this? This kind of like like on-the-spot reporting is just done by a handful of people. Sure. And he found this guy that worked in a hardware store in Brooklyn. and Yeah, and then like was there like with the – was was able to like almost omnisciently track like the people that came into this guy's orbit. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that the editors were like, "Wow, you did a really good job here." Not you're a fraud. Eh, who cares? Yeah, they should have just. When I hear things like that, I'm like, just say it's fiction from the beginning. Right. It's still interesting. Yeah. It's like when the guy the the author wrote about his drug uh, rehab. The um, James Fry. Yeah, that was a great book. 
and I remember at the time when that all came out, I was like, man, oh, you man. Should, should have just called it fiction. It's a really good book. But I thought I, I followed that story and, and thought the same thing. Like, like why? Why would you? Why would you say that every word of this is accurate? Yeah, doesn't make any sense. Uh, we will get back to uh, circus families, believe it or not, right after this message. So, Chuck, sometimes the um, if the family circus, the circus family, <laughs> can get in front of a show promoter, yeah, they can have some sort of control over their own name. Sure. The change that comes to it. And that is the case with the Hobsons, Robert Hobson, who left England for the U.S. in 1868 um, and started a, a family, a circus family act. Yeah, acrobats. A family act. That's right. And apparently he was noted... For tossing his sons about like Indian rubber. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It means he was basically throwing his sons all over the place and they're just landing places. Well, no, I get that, but I just I don't know what Indian rubber is. Uh, I think that they were very pliable. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so with the name change, they were uh, originally Hobson. Oh, I'm sorry, originally Nelson, but changed their name. No, it was Hobson first. Oh, it was? Oh, yep. yeah. Changed to Nelson. Man, it gets confusing. Right. So he called themselves Professor Nelson and Sons. Right. The sons who he tossed about like Indian rubber. Right. But it's not a better, like Nelson's no better than Hobson. It's just strange. Uh, yeah, he changed it supposedly, allegedly, because he wanted to pay homage to a former stage partner that, I guess, had died or moved on or whatever. Right. Well, that makes sense. I couldn't find the person's name, whoever the Nelson was, but it was an homage well, maybe he wanted some uh, anonymity as well. Yeah, but he was probably on the run from the law. Sure. So um, the Nelsons became the Great Nelson family because they they follow that tradition of like needing more people mm-hmm. um, f- more quickly than they could reproduce. Right. Uh, so they brought in other performers who weren't family members, and they became the Great Nelson family, and then ultimately the Flying Nelsons, which is what they became famous as, the Flying Nelsons. Yeah, and here's I thought the cool little factoid about them uh, in the early, I'm sorry, late 1920s, um, granddaughter Hilda. Taught lot was hired to teach Lon Chaney, the actor, how to walk the high wire yep. in a movie called Laugh Clown Laugh, and then all of the Nelsons um, were in a movie called Circus Rookies mm-hmm. in 1928. Yep. So um, they still continue, I think, not as the Nelsons, but um, they said their ancestors, some of which still perform. Yeah, they they basically retired mostly by 1935. Yeah. But then, yeah, some carried on. Sure. What about the Flying Walendas? These are the ones that everybody knows. Everybody's heard of that. It's sort of, uh, that became part of the lexicon. Yeah, the Flying Walendas. Yeah. Um, And funny enough, the Flying Walendas actually got their name from a newspaper headline that dubbed them that because four of them fell from a high wire. Yeah, in Akron, Ohio. And they said, oh, look, they're the Flying Walendas. Yeah, they said the quote was the 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 Valendas Valendas the Valendas fell so gracefully that it seemed as if they were flying. Uh, but I wonder, like, there were other flying flying Nelsons. Like, was this the first one? I wonder. 
The Walendas? No, because the Flying Nelsons were called that long before the middle of the 20th century. So oh, yeah. That did make I, sense. I think so. it was a natural sure. word to apply to a circus family. That did acrobatics. Right. They are flying. And they definitely did acrobatics, man. They were... Um, they cemented their legacy for the seven-person chair pyramid. Wait for it. On a high wire. No nets. No nets, no harnesses. Very dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that Carl Walenda, um, who was the patriarch at the time, died at age 73 from a fall on the high wire. Yeah, they had a lot of tragedy. Um, when they had the pyramid collapse in 1962, two people died, and Carl's son Mario was paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Carl goes on to die. They had a sister-in-law who fell to her death Jeez. in 1963. And then in 1944, they were the group performing when the Hartford Circus Fire broke out. Oh, really? So their act was going on. Uh, these tents were made of, they were coated in paraffin wax at the time. And probably kerosene. To uh, keep it from, uh, to keep it waterproof. Right. Paraffin wax is highly flammable. So is kerosene. So is kerosene. And um, a little tent sidewall started, and during their performance, um, the a band leader spotted it, and apparently, and they should tell everyone this, the song Stars and Stripes Forever is a warning signal to the circus performers. So oh, really? He said, start playing that, and that signaled, like, big trouble is ahead, mm. and 160. 66 to 69 people died. Yeah, didn't it only have one point of entrance or exit, I think? I don't know. I know that some of the exits were blocked because they had, uh, like, the ramp set up for the lions and stuff to come through, like Uh uh, portals. Yeah. And so they couldn't get out that way, so you might be right. But, yeah, that was one of the deadliest fires in U.S. history. That's a bad fire. Yeah, and there were a, a bunch of circus fires. I read about two or three. I would guess if you have huge canvas tents... A lot of hay on the ground. Yeah, and um, they're coated in flammable material. Yeah, and everybody smoked. Sure, like big in, cigars. Yeah, and then we'll just, they they still don't know. There was a guy that claimed responsibility as an arsonist, but um, he they don't think he did it. He was mentally ill, and uh, although he was an arsonist. <laughs> just not that time. Just not that time. So the, the Walendas have become synonymous with... Um, Circus tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Strangely. But they also, um, it hasn't overshadowed their accomplishments. They're in the world, the Guinness Book of World Records for the world's first and only 10 person pyramid on a tightrope. Crazy. So consider this several of their family members died doing this, mm-hmm. and they went on to not only redo it, but mm-hmm. to add three more seats. Three more Willendas. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So they set a world record. Um, and then uh, Nick Willenda who has been on Discovery Channel before, I believe. He walked over the Grand Canyon. What channel? Discovery Channel. Have you heard of it? Gotcha. They, um, I think he was the one who walked over the Grand Canyon. He definitely walked over um, uh, Chicago in between two skyscrapers over a 600-foot drop. Yeah, man, that stuff is just nutty. Which is 200 meters. Crazy. Yeah, on a, on a high wire without a net. No. You could put a net at the bottom. It's not going to do anything. How do, we talked about this a little bit recently with the uh, movie coming out about Man on Wire, the tightrope mm-hmm. walker between the Twin Towers. Yeah. How does the wind not just knock them off? Well, that's what that pole's for. Is to to extend their um their point of uh, what balance, point center of gravity. Yeah, I mean, I knew it helped them balance, but it just seems like the wind could be so fierce it could like like the wind blows me over just walking down the street. 
I've seen it. <laughs> I frequently have to help you up. That's how you found most of your lucky pennies. Yeah, that's a good point. I hoovered them all up. <laughs> all right, are we on to the uh, the Hajinis? Yes, we are. The Hajinis, which is it started out as the Hajas. Mm-hmm. Not good enough. No. Let's make it more Italian and add Eni to the end of Hajas. Yes, which is what a promoter did uh, to that lovely English surname in the late 19th century. And... Um, they have been around for a long time, 350-year uh, ancestry of circus performers. Yeah. It's not bad. It isn't bad. I think that's the oldest in here. The Willendas went back to the late 18th century, the 1700s. Yeah, I think the Hajinis might be the oldest one in here. This one uh, lady I saw that was interviewed, I can't remember her name. She was a 12th generation on one side and 7th on her father's side. Man, that's... Serious being circus. Yeah. So with the Hajinis, Chuck, um, yeah. they were they were really good with the horse. Yep, equestrians. Yep, they had their own, um, in particular, Harriet, which was one of um, Albert Hajinis, um, who I, well, I guess he wasn't the founder if it went back 350 years, but yeah. um, an early Hajini, sure. early 20th century Hajini or late 19th century. Um, his kid Harriet... Uh, would somersault and, like, dance on the back of a moving horse, which is weird because I've seen that before. I've seen, like, footage from the 40s or 50s, so I wonder if I was seeing her. Because there's probably not that many people walking around on Earth who can do backflips on a horse. That's a good point. Um, But the really notable thing about the Hajinis is what they did in retirement. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Tom and Betty Hajini... uh, from Indiana, Peru, Indiana, not to be confused with Peru, the country. Peru, Peru. Yeah. Uh, they retired in 1956, and a businessman there said, you know what, why don't you come and uh, work with some kids and teach them, like, your your craft? Mm-hmm. And that began... Uh, and they were just like, leave us alone. <laughs> Seriously. Retired. Yeah. Uh, and that's... the welcome mat? <laughs> no? Because we didn't put one out. Get off our property. Uh, that began what is now the uh, Peru Amateur Circus, in which uh, kids perform uh, like 10 performances every summer. And it just sounds like a neat little program. Yeah, and, and it's not that little. Apparently tens of thousands of people show up for it. Yeah, little, you know. And um, it's actually going on July 8th, 11th to 18th. Oh, nice. Yep, around, I don't know exactly when this one's going to come out, but it will be in time. So if you find yourself around Peru, Indiana, go check out the uh, circus there. July 11th to 18th. <laughs> Chuck, we got more, don't we, up our sleeves? Yeah, more Enies. Um, and we will talk about them right after this. You remember you said, uh, Chuckers, that um, a lot of these families started out as like a great equestrian families? Sure. Um, the Cognettes are probably the premier equestrian circus family around. Yes, they began in 1870. Uh, a teenager named Leopold Cognot, and they were Hungarian. Um, he, he did the old, uh, like right out of a storybook, he said, I'm running away and joining the circus. Yeah, that's another way to found a circus family. Go start your own? To run off to the circus, yeah, and start yeah. it. Yeah, start having kids. Yeah. And then you won't be circus, but your kids will be circus. Yeah. 
It's got to start somewhere. Exactly. At some and point. And it all starts by running <laughs> off to the circus. That's right. Of course, he might have uh, married into circus. He probably, yeah, he probably did. You know? Could have. So uh, not only were they equestrians, they, uh, and of course, when we say equestrian there, it's always bareback riding tricks almost. Yeah, but this article actually has, it features a, um, a member of the Cognats, uh, Tina Cognat, who um, was competing for the U.S. in the 2012 Olympics. Yeah, that, like, sure, she got out of the circus and said, let me, what's something super snobby I can go do? <laughs> <laughs> Is it dressage? I don't know. That's not snobby, though. It's just, uh, it's actually beautiful and amazing. Yeah. I don't want the equestrians. They're, you don't want them after you. Is that a hornet's nest? Yeah, it's a hornet's nest. Uh, they're on horses, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. You know? <laughs> they can run faster than you on a horse. So, like most performers, uh, John Ringling of the Barnum & Bailey Circus caught a hold of them in 1907, said, you're coming to America. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they performed there for a little while, but then said, you know what, we're going to go back to Europe and we're going to start our own circus. No, not just a circus. An American-style circus. And Wild West show. Yeah. It was good on them, you know? Yeah, I think it's hilarious. So they're like, oh, okay, I get right. it now. <laughs> they're going to go crazy for this in Europe. So the equestrian uh, part of the show was uh, really big in Europe. And then, like, uh, which was the family? The um, Clarks? Mm-hmm. Uh, World War II put a dent in all of Europe. So they said, well, I guess we got to go back to America now. Yep. And then they, they kept performing and eventually stopped. Uh, at least they, they, I guess the family legacy was to create equestrian centers. Yeah. Um, so they weren't circus performers any, anymore, but it's almost like this equestrian family had a brush with circus notoriety and then... Leveraged that? Yeah, and then just continued on as an equestrian family, which is pretty neat. You'd probably make more money in equestrian... Services, I would guess so. You know? And then Arthur Cognat, who's one of the original, who's the, one of the sons of the founder, Leopold, uh, he's in the International Circus Hall of Fame. Nice. So there you go. So they're not doing too bad. No. Uh, all right, we got a couple more here. Um, do you know how to pronounce this one? T O G N I S? I would say Tonis. Tonis, that's what I was going to say. Tony uh, Marinara. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they are another Italian family um, in Circus Dynasty. And the original founder, uh, Aristide Togni, he said, was a student, and he said, you know what, I'm done with school, and I'm going to uh, go perform the circus, open my own, have eight kids mm-hmm. so I can open my own circus. Yeah, I get the impression that he decided he was done with school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he ran off to the circus. Um did you have the impression whether his wife um, was a circus, was circus family circus performer? I don't know. Well, she was after they got married. They um, had kids and set up their own circus, and it was such a success that um, in 1919, the king of Italy, or the king of that part of Italy, because I don't. When was Italy uh, unified together in a single country? Was it under Mussolini? Oh boy, I don't know. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, well, King King Victor Emmanuel III um, created uh, or said that the Circo Togni was the Circo Nazionale. Yeah, and that ran for a while. Um, again, a circus fire in 1951 Man. hit the Circo Nazionale Togni, and from that point, three of the sons split apart and formed three different circus factions. Yeah. 
That virus spread them far and wide. I guess so. But uh, they are noteworthy because not only were they a circus family, they were uh, really smart, inventive engineer types and made a lot of advancements in the circus uh, itself, like the tent. Uh, yeah, those, like the big top tent, the cupola. Yeah. They came up with that. Yeah, they came up with three different designs, uh, the round cupola in the 1940s, the oblong in the 70s, and the the hugely famous round cupola quarter pole free right. in the 90s. And uh, one of the other sons, too, um, invented the collapsible seating wagons and a metallic mesh cage that I don't know if that's the globe of death or not. No, that's the Uriases who came up with the, the globe of death. All right, so the metallic mesh cage he invented must have just been like, uh, I don't know, for animals or something? Probably. Yeah. Point is, though, they were uh, inventors and made some money doing that stuff. Yes. Like designing tents and the like. And one of the things that, that we haven't really kind of hit squarely on is the fact that these if, if you're born into a circus family and you are raised in the circus... Um, from what I've read, you're very rarely pressured into being a part of the family. It's more like this is your reality, so you start mm-hmm. doing gymnastics and acrobatics at yeah. an early age. and You're surrounded um, by it. Yeah, and then eventually, at, you know, age 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you end up like being a part of the family act and then the circus as a, at large. Um, but it raised a question to me like about that 10,000-hour myth. Like is it just from <laughs> practicing this stuff at an early age or, you know, are some – are the, is this just the result of some, you know, people who are born acrobats coming together and producing offspring that are born acrobats themselves? I don't know. It's a great question. It is a good question. Um, I, I wonder how many times it's happened that you're in a big circus family, you have like seven kids, and six of them <laughs> are in the circus, and one of them's like, I want to be a city planner. Yep. Probably not much. No. So we got one more? We do the Uriasis, who did come up with that globe of death in 1912. That globe, that metal globe. That you ride globe motorcycles that, in. Yeah, that was invented in 1912. Yeah, I had no idea it went back. It seemed, I was sure that this thing was probably invented in like the 1960s or 70s. I was going to say 70s. Yeah. Seems like a 70s thing to invent. Totally. You know? Yeah, but it, yeah, it goes all the way back to 1912. That is nuts. So the, the actual globe of death was a 16-foot diameter metal mesh orb. Yeah, and the idea is if you haven't seen one of these, A, just look up a video real quick. Mm-hmm. B, uh, crawl out from under that rock you live in <laughs> right. under. And then uh, C, it's uh, when you put multiple motorcycle riders that just gun it and fly around this thing without hitting each other. Right. Ideally. Yeah. And they, they would um, add people who are juggling fire in the center of the globe. Sure. Stand with people riding still. around it. Going up to 60 miles an hour, apparently. Um, and uh, they had, the, the Uriases in particular, were the first to feature female motorcycle riders. The first to feature two female motorcycle riders, because how are you going to top the first one? But in two add, add two. Um, and there's one where the Jody uh, Urias who does a neck spin. You know that thing where, like, you just have a harness attached to the back of your head, mm-hmm. and you spin around. Yeah, till you vomit. Right. Yes. They had her doing that with people going around her on their bikes in circles. Yeah, it's really impressive. <laughs> I mean, the precision is is ridiculous. When you see, I mean, I, I've seen. I don't think it's. Uh, I mean, they're still doing this act today. I saw another family. They they don't have the market cornered on the globe of death, 
But uh, but they invented it. Yeah, yeah, they he invented it. He just failed it. the copyright or trademark it, I guess. But I did see another family that was, I think they had like eight motorcycles in this thing. It was ridiculous. That is cuckoo. And one where they actually brought the 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 globe apart so where there was a gap that oh, they would be jumping or riding over, I right. guess. And it was suddenly filled with crocodiles. <laughs> no. But these people crashed, uh, when was it? Every couple of weeks? No, I looked at there was a crash not too long ago. Uh, it was in April of this year at the Washington Fairgrounds. And um, there's actually a YouTube of it. It's not like remarkable. It just at the very end of their thing, they all just sort of run into each other. Really? But um, there was a fractured leg and uh, some broken ribs. But other than that, everyone was okay and got right back up on the horse. The iron horse. The iron horse. The steel horse. You got anything else? No. So that's circus families, part of our never-ending quest to explain absolutely everything there is on planet Earth and beyond. That's right. It's one of them. Uh, If you want to know more about circus families, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I said search bar, which means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, We Misspoke. On something in the Bridges episode. Oh, I did, Chuck. I take full responsibility. And uh, we like to point these things out. Uh, Do you want to set this up? Yeah, in the Bridges episode, I talked about the Hyatt Regency Skywalk collapse. Remember you made that Lionel Richie's joke and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. In 1981? Uh Well, like 104, I believe 114 people ultimately died from this thing. And I said that it was because they were dancing on the Skywalk at the time. Totally not true. There was a tea dance going on in the lobby below, and people were standing on the skywalks mm-hmm. looking at it. And the skywalk apparently in the design, um, there had been a change in design that nobody did the numbers and crunched the math on, and this thing could barely hold up its dead weight. And then once you had you know a few dozen people on it, the, the fourth-story skywalk collapsed onto the second story uh, skywalk and both of them collapsed onto the ground gotcha it was it's crazy if you look up the Hyatt Regency skywalk collapse and look at some of the images uh-huh. just the destruction is amazing wow uh, alright so I guess you just picked out the we heard from a few people you picked out probably the nicest one I would imagine <laughs> that's what we usually try to do uh, hey guys wanted to point out your explanation of the Kansas City Hyatt Regency collapse uh, cited the wrong cause uh, the collapse was due to a change that was made to the initial design Two walkways were supposed to be supported by long, continuous, threaded steel rods from the ceiling. Design was changed to two separate rods. Uh, It should be noted that the original design was determined to hold only 60% of the minimum building code load, uh, and the way it was built would only support half of that. Not enough. Not nearly enough. Uh, One bridge failure that should be mentioned is the Quebec Bridge uh, crossing the St. Lawrence River. Uh, This bridge collapsed twice when it was being built, and it's cited as a reason behind the idea of registering and licensing engineers to practice, something that is a standard throughout the world now. And that is from Taylor, who is a geotechnical engineer, a branch of civil engineering that deals with soils, rocks, and foundations. Nice. Uh, She said, or he, I don't know which, uh, that I make sure the ground can support the structure. Thanks a lot, Taylor. It's a pretty neat job, I guess, and very important. Yeah, and thanks for the email. We appreciate that. And uh, I went back and looked to try to figure out where I got that info, but I swear I did not make up. Don't you hate that? Yeah. I've been called out on stuff that I've read, and I couldn't find the source. Yeah. And it's still wrong, but 
it's maddening. It's like, I, I know I didn't just create this out right. of my own brain. Yeah. So we, we believe you, Josh. But thanks to everybody who wrote in and said, hey, dudes, uh, that is absolutely wrong. Because we want to make sure we get it right. Yeah. So if we got something wrong that you want to point out and correct us on, let us know. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.